0: Welcome to the Chapel Online. At the Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the chapel. We have a media. My name is Andrew. I'm on staff here at the chapel. I'm like Abram say we're continuing in a series through. The book of First Peter. But before we do, I want to hit a couple of things. One, I do want to continue to celebrate our Live Sent Conference um, from this past weekend. If you were there, you understand that it was just a powerful movement of us focusing on Jesus together as a whole church, as two locations, college ministry and all. It was just a really sweet weekend. If you didn't get a chance to come, we do have all the recordings um, for those sessions. So we'd love for you to catch up with that. And also, I want to celebrate Veterans Day weekend. Um, We do want to say thank you to all of our veterans for the sacrifice that you have given um, for us to be able to live in a country to where we don't have to fight the things that the Christians in Peter's time actually had to, the freedom of religion, the freedom of speech, um, and just the freedom of our nation. So we want to say thank you to all of you who are veterans. For those of you who have family members that are veterans, we just absolutely want to say Thank you. Now, speaking of the life we get to live because of our veterans, today I want to talk about the good life and how we can actually live the good life. I don't know if you've realized this, but the American culture and people, we are absolutely obsessed with living the good life. I'd simply Googled live the good life and got 10.1 billion hits. We're a culture obsessed with living in ease and living in good things and chasing after the things of this world. But the question is, what exactly is The good life. How do we actually define a life that is good? Merriam-Webster defines it this way, which is kind of funny to me until I realize how true it is for our world. The good life is the kind of life that people with a lot of money are able to have. A happy and enjoyable life. And on the surface level, we think, oh, that sounds great. Until we look at people with money, we look at people with influence, we look at people with things, we realize they don't necessarily live a good life life. Celebrities' lives are always falling apart. Rich people's lives are always crumbling. Just this past week, we talked about last week, Tom Brady and his wife Giselle, two of the most beautiful and successful people in the world. Their life is falling apart. They would say, we're not living the good life. We don't see this just in our culture of the good life not being what we think it is. We also see this in scripture. There was a guy named Solomon who was not just the wisest person to ever live, possibly the richest person to ever live. Live. He had more wives than there were people in this room. He had horses, he had palaces, he had land. He had everything you can ever imagine. He actually had the queen of Sheba come visit him and she was blown away by how much stuff he had. This is what he said about life in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So apparently having stuff, chasing things, power, money, sex, homes, cars, vacations, apparently that doesn't necessarily equal the good life. And the question is, what actually does? In our passage today, Peter's going to actually walk us through not just what the good life is, but how we can engage with it. He's going to be writing to a group of Christians saying, this is how we live the good life. And for the record, the people he's writing to are actually living a life that we would think is the opposite of the good life. They're having their lives threatened every single day. If you've been here for our series so far, they're under the rule of a guy named Nero. And if you think your second grade teacher was crazy, she's got nothing on Nero. Man, he is crucifying Christians upside down. He's setting the city on fire. He's blaming it on them. Their life is absolutely difficult. It's full of suffering and it is full of pain. Yet Peter says there is a chance for the good life. And because of that, you can stand fast in the grace of God. So today we're going to pick up in first Peter chapter three, where we left off last week. And for the record, we're going to cover a big, a huge piece of scripture today, 15 total verses. And I like to go through verse by verse. So we might be here. Oh, while. I'm just kidding. We're not gonna be here too long. Um, we will kind of move through this quickly, but we wanted to make sure we ended with Jesus. And at the end of this passage is where we're going to be So first Peter chapter three, starting in verse eight, Peter says, finally, all of you be like minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. He said, if you want to live the good life, if you want to have your hope focused on Jesus, who he is and what he's done, these are the steps you need to take. And I love that he starts off with, Finally, because he's had this kind of big sermon he started in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to today. He talked about submitting to governmental authorities, submitting to your bosses, to your masters, and even in marriage last week, submitting to each other. He's saying in all of those things, this is what is most important for all of us. And that's to have the right attitude. If we're going to live the good life, if we're going to actually have the hope of Jesus We are to live the good life and have our attitude in Christian community be this, humble and united. Our attitude in our Christian community should be humble and united. Now, Peter actually walks us through five distinct characteristics of our attitude. And I just put two up here just because your handout. Couldn't handle all five things. But I want to walk through each of those five descriptions of what he's saying. If you want the good life, this is what your attitude should be. And the first one he says is this, we're to be like God minded. We are to be like minded. And this is actually a compound word, even in the original language. It's the term meaning homo, meaning the same homogeneous, having the same. And then mind is really the word used to describe the frontal lobe. He's saying have the same thinking. This is actually how we're able to have the good life, how we're able to have connection with people if we are like Minded. And Jesus would say this in John 17, verse 11. He's saying, God, I'm doing this. I mean, he's saying, God, Father, I'm doing all of this work so that they might have the same mind as you and me. He's saying a big marker of Christians, but ultimately a marker for the good life as being united, having the same heart, thinking the same thing, which means we came to be peacemakers in this world, not to stir up Trouble. It means we're to speak truth, to speak kindly, to be focused on Christ, not focusing on stirring the pot. So if you find yourself being like-minded, you're moving toward the good life. But if you find yourself being a pot stirrer, number one, you probably need to shut your mouth. Two, you need to shut down Facebook. And then we need to focus on Jesus so we can be like-minded. The second one is this, to be sympathetic. To be sympathetic, and the term sympathetic here is actually to suffer together. Which means as followers of Jesus, we're not to be alone in our suffering. We're to be with each other, holding each other's arms up. We pity from above, but we sympathize from beside. We are to be in each other's hurts and pains and mess. And the same thing here for people who are unlike us. This is also for the non-believing world. The non-believing world should understand how much we care for them and how much we love them because they are not our enemy with the love of Jesus. They are our target the people unlike us are those that we're called to go after and to love deeply. The next one is this, kind of carries on the next phrase, to love one another. And this is the brotherly love. It's actually the word Philadelphos is where we get our city name, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. This is outdoing one another in honor. This is serving. This is taking care. This is doing whatever it takes to put someone else's needs before your own. This is the love we see Jesus have for his disciples Putting their needs above his own. The next one is compassionate. The word compassion. And this actually is a, is a fun word in the regional language. Normally I never say the Greek word, but this one's fun. Um, it's called splagna. So on the count of three, I want us to all say splagna. alright y'all ready? You're going to tell people you learned Greek today. Like, how cool is that? I'm not sure if that's geeky or Greeky, but we're going to say splagna on the count of three. You ready? One, two, three. Splagna. What that means is your internal gut or your internal bowels whenever you go on your first date back in high school and you get butterflies that's your splagna but what peter is saying if we're truly going to follow jesus live the good life and set our hope on him whenever we see someone in pain we should be moved on the inside we should be so deeply moved by their pain by their hurt that we do something about it so living the good life isn't a life focused on self but actually focused on others which is the last term here humble to live a humble life. And C.S. Lewis would describe it this way. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's putting other people before yourself. Paul would say it this way in Philippians chapter two. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. So if we want to live the good life according to the American culture, it's chasing all the things that make us happy. If we want to live the good life according to Peter, according to Paul, ultimately according to Christ, we're to put the needs of other people before ourselves. We're to have the right attitude, which means we're to be humble and we're to be united. That's hard enough. Peter's about to get into really tough stuff in verse verse 9. He says, Do not repay evil with evil, insult with insult on the contrary repay evil with blessing because to this you recall so that you may inherit a blessing now this is an absolutely beautiful verse not repay evil with evil or insult with insult until it applies to us right like absolutely if we do something to someone else we don't want them to repay us with evil but if someone hurts us they need to get theirs we need to have revenge but what is peter saying in the christian life in the good life there is no such thing as retaliation there is no such thing as vengeance there is no such thing as revenge so it's not just our attitude it's actually our response our response to evil and insults is this is to bless it's to bless we're called to bless those who actually persecute us and hurt us. Jesus says it the best way I think in Matthew chapter five. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. This is old testament, old covenant. You poke my eye out, I'm gonna poke yours out too. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Look at verse forty two. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He's saying we're repaying evil with blessing for a purpose so that we might look like God. And and Jesus isn't saying we return blessing to evil just in the physical sense. This includes The verbal sense, because in our our world today, we're less violent as far as physical nature, but we are very violent with our words. This means we're to return blessing to our ex spouse who likes to run their mouth about us. This means we return blessing to Karen at the HOA who's always wearing us out about how tall our grass is. This means we return blessing to those who speak ill of us at work. We are returning blessing to the people who believe politically different than we do. We return blessing to those who seem like enemies. There is no such thing as retaliation, vengeance, and revenge when it comes to following Jesus. We respond with blessing. But my question is, what in the world does it mean to bless others? Do we like walk around like Catholic priests and say, bless you, child, whenever someone slaps us? Like, what what does it even mean to bless someone? Well, I think Jesus showed us in Matthew chapter 5, and the first one is this, to serve them. If they need you to step up and carry something for a mile, go above and beyond to put their needs before your needs. Second one, he said, pray. Pray for your enemies. One, pray for their salvation, but two, pray for their heart to change towards you, but also pray for your heart to change towards them. And then lastly, and we're going to drop the F word in church today, forgive them. Forgive those who hurt you. Because when we look at the example of Jesus, we were his enemies. We were the ones who put him on the cross. But what did Christ do? Forgive them for what they have done. If we want to live the good life, we're called to have the right response to evil. And, and Peter actually gives us the full picture of what this looks like in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. And he's actually quoting David out of Psalm chapter 34. And this is where we got the term good life, who would love life and see good days. This is actually David in a really bad predicament, but he says, this is how we pursue God and live the good life. He says, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Having the right attitude, having the right response, being peacemakers in our world. But verse 12 is the kicker. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter says we have the right attitude, we have the right response, because God is always watching Makes me think of Roz off of Monsters, Inc. Always watching, like God is always watching. Not in the evil sense of the the lady off of Monsters, Inc., but the fact that he sees everything. He knows everything. And yes, he's going to punish those who do evil, but also his ears are going to be in tune to those who love him. His eyes are going to be watching those who repay evil with blessing, and he in turn is going to pour out his favor on us. You want to know how to live the good life? The favor of God is how we live the good life. And the favor of God shows up when we have the right attitude and when we have the right response. And Peter goes a little bit deeper into what this response actually looks like and how we're able to come back with love. Look at verse 13. He says, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. Now when we first read this, this seems pretty logical. Peter's like, look, who in the world is going to do bad stuff to good people? You're out there feeding hungry kids, no one's going to hurt you. But actually evil has no logic. Evil in our world doesn't follow the rules of the way that it should of right and wrong. And this is actually phrased in what's called the optative in Greek, which means who's going to do bad to you? Actually, people are going to do bad to you. It's kind of a given here. So he's saying when they do bad to you, we're still called to respond in good. And Jesus promised us this was going to happen in John chapter 15. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would if you belong to the world, it would love you as it loves its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Jesus saying, I promise you the world is going to hate you, not because of you, but because of me. And when you suffer for good, it strengthens your faith. Not because your faith gets stronger, but because it makes you focus on the object of your faith It makes you realize how indeed good Christ is is. So how do we do that? How do we focus on Christ in the midst of suffering? How do we actually see the good that God brings about it? He tells us in verse 15. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with a, with a gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander, For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than doing evil. He's saying, so how how do we do this? We focus on Jesus. We revere Christ as Lord. Peter's saying, if Christ can save you from death and sin, Christ can help you walk through suffering in this world. If Christ can defeat death, defeat sin, defeat evil for all time, He can help you navigate your enemy at work. He can help you navigate the spouse who's not very nice right now. He can help you navigate the, the problems you're having with your children. If we revere Christ as Lord, we have the right perspective. But also, we're called to be prepared. So how do we live the good life? He talks about it here. He says our actions and our speech in the face of suffering. They are to be prepared. We're to be prepared. Now, This is kind of a twofold preparation. This is, first of all, to be prepared to defend while we act and speak the way we do. We're going to get there in a minute. But first of all, we have to be prepared to act and speak the right way whenever suffering hits. The moment to decide you're going to follow Jesus is not in the midst of suffering. It's like whenever you're a hormone crazed teenage boy, the moment to to decide you're going to remain pure is not when you're alone with your girlfriend. It is way too late by that point in time. The moment for me to decide what deer I'm going to shoot in the woods is not the time they start coming out because my emotions will get the best of me. And I going to seem like Rambo letting arrows fly everywhere. That is not the time to decide. It is deciding ahead of time before the suffering ever hits, before hardship ever gets here, that I'm going to revere Christ as Lord. If he can defeat death and sin, he is worth following. There's a guy named James Bunyan who wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, you need to read it today. Um, I'm sure the library has it. He was in prison. They said, look, if you would just renounce your faith in Jesus, we will let you go. But he had decided ahead of time, no, I'm prepared to stand firm in my faith. I'm prepared to follow Jesus no matter what it costs me. We need to be prepared with our actions and our speech. But Peter says you also have to be prepared to defend that. When people say, Why in the world do you still follow this guy who promises you suffering? Why in the world do you stick to him whenever the world says do everything else? Peter's saying, be prepared to give a reason for your speech and your action. That reason is what Jesus did. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came, who lived, who died and defeated death on the cross and defeated it through the resurrection. Why am I willing to suffer? Because Jesus is who he says he is. And when we focus on Him, when we focused on Christ, we're able to act the right way, speak the right way, but ultimately we get a picture of what the good life looks like because Jesus is our example. So how do we live the daily life in the hope that will happen Jesus? Our example in the face of unjust suffering is Jesus. It's Jesus. How do we face hardships in this life? We look at Christ. How do we repay evil with blessing? we look at the example of Christ. How do we have the right attitude? Philippians chapter two, we look at Christ. Look at verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. What's the example of Christ? That he willingly suffered for the unjust. Not just did he suffer unjustly, he suffered for the unjust. Jesus didn't come to die for good people. Jesus came to die for you and for me. People who rebelled against him, people who were very clearly stating, We are your enemy, yet he still died for us. The one who was righteous became unrighteous, so that we as unrighteous could become his righteousness in Christ. Paul says it this way in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5: God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is saying God's plan from the very beginning was to save the people who rebelled against him. And if God can love us and redeem us and bring us back and suffer for us who are a greater enemy to him than any of us ever could have in this world, he is our example of what true love and true righteousness and true sacrifice looks like. Jesus is our example. Verse 19 it says, after being made alive, he went and made a proclamation to the imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. i Paul going right there. That's crazy, right? When I read that in the first the passage, I was like, Kevin, do we have to preach that? Like what in the world? We're talking about imprisoned spirits. We're talking about Noah. What, what are we even talking about? Now, there are people way smarter than me who have read this, and they've thought, like okay, this is what this could mean. Like, I want to be very clear. We're going to walk through what I think this means, and we're going to walk through different views. But what this is ultimately saying is something beautiful about Jesus. He patiently warned those who were disobedient. Jesus patiently warned those who were disobedient. Back in the times of Noah, in our time today, Jesus, he patiently warned those who were disobedient. Now, when it comes to what in the world does that verse mean there there are kind of three main views i'm gonna give you the first two and i'm gonna give you the third one i'm not saying the third one's right it's just what i think i I think is true and i think it actually makes sense the the questions that we have in this verse i'm gonna let you go back to that verse for me chad in verse 19 says after being made alive he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits so view number one is this, that after Jesus died on the cross, he actually descended to hell. And when he descended to hell, he preached to the imprisoned spirits. But the imprisoned spirits weren't people. These were actually what they called the sons of gods, so the spirits of the world back in Genesis chapter six, which were the days of Noah. These were the people, the, I mean, the angels who came down, they fell from heaven, they impregnated the beautiful women of earth, and then God said, you know what, I'm going to put you in Prison. This belief says that Jesus, after he died, actually went down to heaven and preached to the spirits that were during the time of Noah. Now, a couple problems I see um, with this, but the main one is this, we never see salvation of angels or demons talked about in scripture whatsoever. We see no clear, we see Christ came as a man for mankind. He never decided to come down for imprisoned spirits. Also, also question is this, if Christ ascended to hell to preach the good news, why would he preach to those who weren't even bound yet? We haven't seen the we haven't seen the demons, we haven't seen Satan we haven't seen him bound yet. that's when Christ returns. So technically they wouldn't even be there yet. So it doesn't seem that view number one makes a whole lot of sense. View number two is this and this goes lightly with the Apostles Creed that after his death Christ descended down, to 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 hell. And while he was there, he preached to the sinners, the imprisoned spirits would be the, the people of Noah's time who were not saved on the boat. And Christ would preach salvation to them. But he descended to hell, not because he wanted to, but because he had to in order to fulfill the work of the cross, to fully pay for God's wrath. A couple issues with that view too. I told you this is crazy. We're going to get back to the most important things. I know some of y'all really like this stuff and I kind of do too. Um, But a couple issues with that. Number one, if Christ's work wasn't finished on the cross, why did he say it is finished? And two, even if he did go to preach to the sinners of this kind, that goes against justification by faith. That once we're dead... Everything is done. And also, and Augustine would actually say this, St. Augustine would say this. He would say, if he went to go preach to the sinners of Noah's kind, why didn't he preach to everybody? If his heart was for the gospel, why wouldn't he offer repentance to everybody? So the first two views, I just think, don't make a whole lot of sense. The third one I want to put to you is this. He says, after being made alive, that he went and made proclamation. I want to actually say that the translation that we're using, the NIV, doesn't get this wording actually correct. I would actually say when it says, after being made alive, it should actually say in which. You can go to the next um, passage for me there, Chad. So picking up verse 18, it says he was made alive in the spirit. Instead of after being made alive, it would be in which. So in the spirit, Christ actually preached to the people of Noah's time via noah so this is saying before christ came as a man before christ was born in bethlehem back during noah's time jesus was actually speaking through noah to the people saying please repent please turn to god or you're about to drown you never seen rain before you're about to see rain and if you don't turn to god you will be imprisoned in hell forever this makes sense to me because it goes along with what peter said in first peter chapter 10 verse 11 talking about the prophets. He says concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. They searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them. So before Christ was born on this earth, he was still spirit. He was still God in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. I think what Peter is saying is this, even back at the worst time of humanity, And when God said, you know what, it's so bad, we got to reboot everything. Jesus was still there patiently saying, follow me, turn to God, seek righteousness. Seek righteousness. I think what what Peter is saying is simply this. From the very beginning, God's plan has been to rescue those who who are far from him. Even at the worst time of Noah, Christ was there saying, come, follow me. Come be reconciled to God through what I do can offer We we'll pick up back in verse 20 it says then in and only a few people eight in all were saved through the water this was Noah's family this was if you watch the movie Russell Crowe and Hermione and all those people on that movie it says that only a few people eight in all were saved through the water and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also not the removal of dirt from the body but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God it saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ He's saying Christ was back preaching the gospel in Genesis chapter 6 to the people, but also just the picture of Noah was a metaphor, or an illustration, a foreshadowing of what was to come with Jesus. And I will be very clear, Peter's not saying water is actually what saves us. We're going to have a baptism in just a minute. We're going to fully explain what that means. This is simply a metaphor or a symbol of what Jesus does on the outside. All water does is wash away dirt. But it's a picture, it's a metaphor of what Jesus does on the inside of us. And what did he say? How, how do you do this? How are you saved? By pledging a clear conscience toward God, which is simply this, is repentance. It's naming your sin. It's claiming your sin. It's forsaking your sin, running away from it and running to God. Baptism is a picture of an inward decision to turn from your sin and to follow Jesus. And when we do, one, we're made new, but then we have the ability to actually live the good life, to actually live a life full of goodness and live a life full of blessing. Why? Because of what Jesus did. We see at the end of verse 21 and 22. It says, "...it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him." How do we live the good life? We focus on Jesus. We focus on Jesus because he victoriously reigns over sin and suffering. He victoriously reigns over sin and suffering. And I want us to see this. What we see in Jesus, even though he's reigning victoriously, he models for us what humility and submission actually looks like. The God who is over all things, the God who is over all authority, the God who commands sin and death to be absolutely done, he still humbled himself to the form of man for you and me. He still humbled himself to come and to die the death of a person living in sin. Why? For you and for me. Even though Jesus saw us as his enemy and righteously so, he gave his life for us. Even though He knew we might never turn to Him and seek reconciliation, He gave His life for us. He ultimately, He models what the right attitude, the right response, the right example, and the right preparation really look like. And He shows us why we can trust Him through the cross and through the resurrection. So as all of heaven, as all the authorities, of all the things of this world are singing praises to His name, He invites us to know Him. He invites us to call Him by name. He says, follow me. You want hope in suffering? You want to live the good life? Come follow me. I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me this morning. I want you to bow your head for two reasons. One, to give our band time to make their way up. But two, I just want to give you a little breather to kind of take in all that we just process and all that we just just ran through because it was a lot. Talking about Noah and imprisoned spirits and all those things might be a lot, so if that's a lot for you, just put it aside for just a second. And I want you to really think about what is your relationship with Christ? Does he reign victoriously over sin and death in your own life, or are you still in control? Is he the one driving your attitude and your response toward those who hurt you, or are you still driving all your decisions? Are you letting the attitude of revenge and anger hold tight to who you are? Or have you released it to Christ to give you freedom and the ability to live the good life? Have you fully turned your life over to Christ? Because if you haven't, having the right attitudes impossible. Having the right response, impossible. Living the good life is actually impossible impossible. But if you see Jesus for who he is, if you see Jesus as Lord over all, but also a personal Savior who came to call you and invite you by name, the good life is a possibility. And the way we do that, Peter outlined it for us. We pledge a clear conscience to God. Now, this is different than pledging allegiance to our country. This is saying, Lord, I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short I know that I've messed up but I know that you are God. You're king over all things and you came in the form of a man to live a perfect life so that you could be a worthy sacrifice and then you gave your life willingly for me. You didn't have to, but you chose to because of your deep love for me. But I wasn't just forgiven because of your death. I was given new life because of your resurrection. I was given new life because of what you did by defeating death and sin through the empty tomb. And today I'm committing my life to you. Because if I don't, the good life is never a possibility. But if I do, it is. Not because all good things are going to happen to me in this world, but because I will have the favor of the Most High God on my life. Father, I pray, God, for everyone in this room, Lord, that they would see you for who you are. And God, as we look at this passage of Scripture, who had a whole, had a whole lot in there, God, that it would not be distracting or confusing, but it would just clearly point us to see all the things you call us to are impossible without Jesus. Being compassionate, being kind, being forgiving, and ultimately living the good life is impossible without Jesus. So Father, I pray today that our prayer and our declaration would be what we see of the whole entire world in verse 22. That we would stand back and sing, All Hail King Jesus that we submit ourselves to each other because we first submitted ourselves to you. We're able to submit ourselves to the rulers of this world because we first submitted ourselves to you. And ultimately, we're able to point people to you because we have decided to follow you and have tasted and seen that you are good. So Lord Jesus, that is our prayer today, that we would put you on the throne, that we would recognize that you are already there, and that we would praise your name. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.